Genesis 1-1. So this is more than likely what Jesus is referring to. Remember in the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verse 8, he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. That's the way John translated it. Now, John wrote that in Greek, but more than likely as a Jew, Jesus spoke in Hebrew and said, I am the Aleph and I am the Tav. Right? I'm the beginning and I'm the end. So we, we just see right here in the very first verse of the Bible that this book is about Jesus. Right? Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 2. And there's a statement made here that I think is very interesting. It says, so this is Paul speaking. And he's talking about when he comes to the church at Corinth. And he says, For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus and him crucified. Now that word know, it means to see and to behold. So it's not just an intellectual thing. It's something with the, that you see with the eyes of your heart. Now what if that was your attitude, not only about other people, right? I'm only going to see you through the lens of Jesus and him crucified. In other words who you are in Christ. But what if we also look at that as that's the only way that we are going to approach Scripture? I'm here to know one thing. This morning when I open my Bible, when I read my chapter, my verses, whatever you do, I'm here for one thing, to see and behold Jesus and Him crucified. Right? That's a goal that we should aim for. Right? Uh, so 2 Peter 1.20, I also made this uh, note last week, but I, I want you to look at this. 2 Peter 1.20, it says, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. Now, we tend to just read that, and it's okay as um, nobody can come up with their own interpretation of any Scripture. And that's true. You know, if, if you're listening to a preacher and, and they're dropping these things, these revelations, and you're like, wow, I've never heard that before, and you go Google it, and no one in, on, in the history of God's creation has ever came up with that interpretation, you can probably throw it in the ditch. It's probably not worth anything. All right? Uh, for example, like grace, we think grace is something new. Grace is nothing new. The teaching of grace is nothing new. Oh, uh, you know, we talk about a grace revolution, and a lot of people think it began with Joseph Prince or Andrew Womack or Jim Richards. Listen, Martin Luther, I mean, first it began with the Apostle Paul, but then Martin Luther began talking about it in the 1500s. Then, then there was Charles Spurgeon in the 17 and 1800s. And E.W. Kenyon taught about it some in the early 1900s. So this thing is nothing new. It's, it's been out there for a long time. Watchman Nee preached it over in China. So th this is nothing New, but what this scripture is actually talking about, when it says private interpretation, that word private means pertaining to self. So this is what it's actually saying. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any interpretation that pertains to self. What's that mean? This is the way Americans tend to read the Bible. We tend to read the Bible and say, okay, that's about me, that's about me, I can do this, I can do that, well, I did that, I need to repent. We make it all about me. We make it all about us. But what Peter is actually saying is there is actually no scripture that pertains to you. He's saying the scripture pertains to who? Christ and him crucified. And here's what I said last week. Um, I made this statement, and I know this seems uh, controversial to say this, but there's actually no promise in the Scripture that's for you. Every promise in the Bible is for Jesus. 
In the volume of the book, it is written of me. Now, here's the good news. The promise is written to Jesus. Where are you? So when you find a verse and you see that that promise was made to Jesus and he kept all the ifs, he kept all the buts, he, he qualified himself perfectly, then you realize if you're in him, you're qualified perfectly. Because if the promise is to you, the moment you read an if, you'll find a way to disqualify yourself. But when you find out that the, pro the promise, the prophecy was written to Jesus and you realize that he's perfectly qualified to receive every promise and you're in him, you automatically qualify for every promise. This is what Paul was talking about when he, when he said, every promise in Christ is in him, yes, and in him, amen. Uh, the New International Version says it's something like this. says, every promise in Christ is yes, and to that we say amen. Right? So, the, so our job isn't to qualify ourselves. In Christ you are qualified. Our job is we say so be it. We say amen. We get the truth in our hearts and we speak it with our mouth. Right? Uh, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. So... The thing about this, when you teach on something like this, I don't want you to think that I'm just trying to give you this information, this head knowledge, and just wow you with some stuff in the book of Genesis. That's never my goal. I don't care about that. I don't care if you go away here saying, wow, I didn't know that about the Bible. All right? that, that doesn't interest me. Everything that we teach here, we want to teach it to take you to a deeper dimension of your fellowship with God, like Brian was talking about, a deeper place of worship. Uh, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. So here's what I want to say. What's the benefit of this? If you will begin reading your Bible in search of Jesus instead of searching for you or searching for the devil or searching for you know, a new doctrine or a new revelation, if you'll begin reading your Bible in search of Jesus, something will happen. You will begin to hear the voice of God much more clearly. Why? He said that God is in these last days speaking unto us by His Son. So why will you hear the voice of God more clearly? Because the Son is the frequency on which the Father speaks. That's why in legalism, you don't really hear God for yourself. Because your focus is on you. And God doesn't speak on the frequency of you. He speaks on the frequency of His Son. I had this uh, experience recently. What I'm ministering to you was really in my heart for a month or two, just really meditating and seeing Jesus in the Old Testament shadows and types and just the Scriptures. And, um, and, and I was just, I mean, it was, it was ministering life unto me. And... One evening, I was upstairs, we were getting the kids ready for bed and in the tub and everything, and, and I was going upstairs, turning the lights off, and, and all of a sudden, it just flooded my heart, all the teaching I've done on heaven, and all the teaching I've done on grief, and I mean, I just knew, like, right, it's like I could teach it right then, like I could just go three hours and tell you everything I knew about heaven, and all of a sudden... All of, all of a sudden, I knew I had to teach it. And I thought, well, what's coming up soon? I'm doing the radio thing with Jeremiah. Maybe that's it. But I knew that wasn't it. I go downstairs. I pick up my phone. And I immediately, it like dings. As soon as I pick it up, 
And it's a young man who just a year ago lost his mother in a very traumatic way. And he says, man, I'm really struggling. I need you to minister to me about heaven. And I thought, what are the chances that that flooded my heart just one minute before? Right? And God spoke to me and said, when you meditate on my son, you'll hear me more clearly because you're, here, you're on my frequency. Right, So as we meditate on Jesus in the Scriptures, you may think you've got all this stuff going on. Listen, if, if you're struggling with sickness, the worst thing you can do is go find every verse on healing. Because you know what usually ends up happening? You get so frustrated because you're not seeing those promises come to fulfillment in your life. If you're struggling, like I tell people all the time, people come up to me and they're dealing with fear, and I say, what are you doing? Well, I know, you know, I've got all these verses on fear not. Worst thing you can do. Because all the scriptures, fear not, fear not, fear not, fear not. You know what you're thinking? Fear. Why am I afraid? Right? It's the wrong motive to have. Get your focus on Jesus. All right? And as you, you know, and, and you see that in the natural you know, when you're dealing with something, if you get your focus off of you and onto someone else, that stuff just doesn't have the power that it does when you're just sitting there focusing on you and your problems. All right? So, so that, that's why this is important. And, and I, so I got to minister to that young man, and then I, I went on the Jeremiah's radio broadcast, and I think it's this coming week, though, those uh, air each day. And we've already, I've already had people message me and say, you know, that touched me, that was powerful. But it did not come as... As, as I sat there and meditated on grief, as I meditated on heaven, right? Now, I've done those things in the past, but, but I, I knew that's what God wanted me to minister. Why? Because I was meditating on Jesus. And not just Jesus, but Jesus and Him crucified. So let, let's go, let's pick up where we uh, left off last week. Let's go to Genesis chapter 8. So we went through the flood last week. And uh, Genesis chapter 8, verse 1 then, and I'm not showing you everything there is to see of Jesus in, in the book of Genesis, but uh, I, I'm giving you a good start. Then God remembered Noah and every living thing. So, so the floodwaters, they're still in the ark, and all the animals that were with him in the ark. And, and remember last week we discussed, so God, God speaks to Noah and says, you're going to rescue the people with this instrument of wood. My words. Something of wood is going to save the people. What's that, what's that sound like? The cross, right? All right, so verse 2, The fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven were also stopped, and the rain from heaven was restrained. And the waters receded continually from the earth. At the end of the 150 days, the waters decreased. Then the ark rested in the seventh month, the 17th day of the month, on the mountains of Ararat. Now, the word Ararat in the Hebrew, you know what it means? The curse reversed. So here we've just seen God's wrath poured out in the form of a flood, but the people were saved. And remember what we talked about last week. The rain, which represents wrath, never touched the people inside the ark. They were safe from the wrath. That represents us in Christ. The wrath touched the cross. It doesn't touch us. Why? Because it, fall, it fell on the cross. right? But here it says that, that the ark rested on the mountain of Ararat, which means the curse reversed. So again, we see that, that type. We see that symbolism. 
After the cross, the curse was reversed. Why? Because he who knew no sin became sin. He himself took upon himself, he took upon himself the curse, right? Uh, then we're going to go down to verse 18. I want you to notice something here. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every animal, every creeping thing, every bird and whatever creeps on the earth according to their families went out of the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord. So I, I want you to notice something. So they come out of the ark. This is important. Watch what is the first thing they, that Noah does. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a soothing aroma. Here's what I want you to realize. The first thing Noah does, this is going to be important. The first thing Noah does, who does Noah represent? Noah represents Jesus. And we talked about it last week. Jesus is always the hero of the story, not us. We like to go and we like to say, I'm Noah, I'm Abraham, I'm Joseph, and you're always the dumb one in the story, not the hero. All right? Like, that's a speak of myself. All right? Um, but look here. And the Lord smelled a sweet Savior. So the first thing Noah does is he makes a blood sacrifice. And it says the Lord smelled a sweet savor. And people get thrown off on this. Why would, God, why would God enjoy that? It's not that God enjoyed the sacrifice of the animals. What God enjoyed was what the smell reminds him of. The lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. In the heart of God, Jesus was crucified before there was ever the need for him to be crucified. Right? So, have you ever smelled something and it brings back a precious memory? Like to this day, I can smell certain food and it reminds me of growing up and my grandma's cooking. Right? There's just certain things you smell and, it, and it, 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 it just pleases you. Right? And that's what happened here. It said, And the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground anymore for man's sake. Why? The curse was reversed, right? That's what we learned about with Ararat. But now notice here, and then notice what he says. I'll never again curse the ground for man's sake, although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. Now down to Genesis chapter 9. So notice, first he makes a sacrifice. We're going somewhere with this. I know it sounds like I'm not going anywhere, but we're going somewhere with this. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, And as for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you. Again, I'm going to ask you one more time. Who is Noah? In the story, who's Noah? Noah is Jesus. Noah comes out of the ark. He makes the sacrifice. And then God speaks to him and says, Now I'm going to make a covenant with you. This is what we have to understand about the new covenant. The new covenant is not a covenant between God and you. The new covenant is a covenant between God the Father and God the Son. It's a covenant between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. All right? So God does not say here, I'm going to make a covenant with you know everyone, although everyone's included here because they're the only people. But he specifically says, I'm going to establish my covenant with you. This covenant is something that me and you are going to make. 
right? And everyone else will benefit after, but the covenant is between me and you. The new covenant is between the Father and the Son. So look here. Um, let's go down to verse 11. Thus I establish my covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy all the earth. All right, so I want you to notice here. God says, all right, because of this, I'll never again punish the earth. I'll never again curse the earth. All right? And then he gives him a sign. Every covenant has to have a sign. Uh, under the new covenant, the uh, when you are baptized, that's not something that makes you saved. It's just a sign of the covenant. It's you saying, I I'm in this covenant. Uh, verse 12, And God said, This is the sign of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you. I set my rainbow in the cloud, and it shall be for the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. So the, a rainbow, he goes on to say that anytime you see a rainbow, it's supposed to remind you of one thing, this covenant. All right? Now, Isaiah gives us a perfect picture of this in Isaiah chapter 54. But, I, but let me bring this out too. We're going to go to Isaiah 54 verse 7. The Bible is a book of covenants. Now, listen to me close. Listen to me close. The first covenant, everybody say first. The first covenant in the Bible was with Adam. All right, that's the first covenant in the Bible. The next covenant, which we would call the second covenant of the Bible. Everyone say second. The second covenant of the Bible is with Noah. In the book of Hebrews, it says God took away the first that he may establish the second. So right here we're seeing the picture of the transition from the old covenant to the new covenant. So get this. God made a new covenant with Noah. All right? just as God made a new covenant with Jesus. Isaiah 54, verse 7. Now, Isaiah 54 comes after what? Come on, let's do math. Isaiah 53. What's Isaiah 53 about? The cross. The suffering servant. It's about Jesus on the cross. Isaiah 54, verse 7. For a small moment have I forsaken you, but with great mercies I will gather you. With a little wrath, I hid my face from you for a moment. But with everlasting covenant, I will have mercy on you. So when did this take place? This took place on the cross. For this, now look here. For this, for this is as the waters of Noah unto me. For this is, what is this? Stop, when you read the Bible and you see something like this, therefore, stop and think, well, what's it talking about? What is this? This that he's referring to is everything that's been recorded in Isaiah 53. It's the cross. It's Jesus. It's him taking our sickness, him taking our punishment, him taking the wrath, him taking all of our sin. For this is as the waters of Noah unto me. For as I have sworn that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so have I sworn that I would not be angry with you nor rebuke you. 
For the mountain shall depart, and the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from you, nor shall my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord who has mercy on you. So when you read the book of Genesis, and you read God appears to Noah, or God speaks to Noah, and He says, all right, because of this, I'm no longer going to curse the earth again. We read it and we just say, well, He's never again going to curse the earth. That's good to know. I don't have to worry about a worldwide flood anytime soon. Go deeper. See, when you read that way, you're seeing Noah. You want to see Jesus. And you don't want to just see Jesus, you want to see him crucified. So when you read God telling Noah, I'll never again flood the earth, what you need to see is God telling you, I'll never, uh, I will never punish you. I will never curse you. I will never bring upon you sickness. I will never hold against you any sin. I've made a new covenant with Christ and you are in Him. That's the way we need to read this. right? We need to go beyond Noah because this story isn't about Noah. It's not about Noah. It's not about you. It's about Jesus. All right? But the name of Jesus is never mentioned. Now, Genesis chapter uh, 14 Verses 14 through 20. Now, we're, we're going to the time of Abraham here. He said, Now, when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his own house and were in pursuit as far as Dan. He divided his forces against them by night, and he and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. So he brought back all the goods and also brought back his brother Lot and his goods as well as the women and people. So Lot, you know, this is a story. There, Lot's living in Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, an invading army comes. They take Lot. Abraham and his servants, they go get them. Uh, verse 17, And the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheba, that is the king's valley, after his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer, and the kings who were with him. Now look here, here's why we're here. Verse 18, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine. Now Melchizedek covers here two verses. In the, in, in the book of three verses in the book of Genesis. That's all he covers. Then there's a verse about him in the Psalms. So four verses in the Old Testament. But whoever is the author of Hebrew writes two chapters, basically, on Melchizedek being Jesus, or at the least the type of Jesus. So I, I want you to think about that. Paul here is, a, a, again, giving us a witness because... Four verses in the scripture about Melchizedek. And Paul takes and makes a whole sermon about Jesus on it. Right? Paul learns, reads three verses here about Melchizedek and says, Jesus, 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 Jesus. Right? He gives us a, a, a way to read the Bible. So let's break this down. Melchizedek comes from two Hebrew words. The first one is Melech. Melech just means king, and then Sedek. Sedek means righteousness. So we, we talk about Jehovah Sidkenu. Uh, Jehovah Sidkenu means the Lord my righteousness. So Melchizedek translate, translates to mean king of righteousness. All right? And notice king of Salem. Now, does anyone know? Now, see, we just read over that. Does anyone know what, where Salem is today? 
Salem is the first name in the Bible of Jerusalem. David was the one who eventually took Salem and it was called Jerusalem. But it was originally known as Salem. So this is, so the king of righteousness who was the king of Jerusalem. Do you see Jesus? Right? Because Hebrews 1.8, you don't have to go there on the screen, but Hebrews 1.8 says, But to the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. He's the king of righteousness. And where, where did he become king? Jerusalem. All right? All right, look here. Uh, go back to Genesis 14. And so then it says, Melchizedek brings forth the bread and the wine. Now, if you can't see Jesus in that, then we've got a problem. What is the bread and the wine a type of? Communion, right? The bread represents what? Connie taught on it this morning. The bread represents the body of Jesus, and the wine represents the blood of Jesus. So, Notice before Melchizedek does anything, before Melchizedek gets anything from Abraham, the first thing he does is serve Abraham with his body and his blood. So he was a king and he was the priest of the Most High God, or he was the high priest. That is Jesus. The Bible says in Revelation says he's made us kings and priests. Why? Because he's the king and he's the priest. All right, verse 19. And he blessed him. So notice the first thing he does is he brings Abraham the body and the blood, and then he blesses him and says, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. Verse 20. And blessed be the Most High God, which has delivered your enemies into your hand. And then look what Abraham does. And Abraham gave him tithes, of all. So now I want you to notice something. He, he gives, first he serves him the body and the blood, and then he blesses him, blesses him, blesses him. And then in response, Abraham comes and Abraham gives him tithes of all. So Abraham comes and as a response gives Melchizedek a tithe. All right, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1. Let's see, this, this gets real good. Hebrews 7, verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, and to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. Notice here what it says about Melchizedek. He was without father. He was without mother. He was without genealogy. He had no beginning of days nor end of life. Now, this right here proves to me that Melchizedek was Jesus before he was in the flesh. It's just a, 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 it's, it's an appearance of Jesus before he had a physical body. Because it says that, listen, the man didn't have a father, the man didn't have a mother, the man didn't have a genealogy, and it also says he didn't have a beginning of days nor end of life. So if Melchizedek was not Jesus, then Melchizedek's running around here somewhere because according to the scripture, that dude still ain't dead. But he was made like unto the Son of God, remains a priest 
continually. Verse 4, Now consider how great this man was to whom even the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And indeed, those who are of the sons of Levi who receive the priesthood. So now he's getting to the law. He's saying, all right, before the law, the only time we read about a priest is Abraham or, or Melchizedek, right? And he says, but then the law came and the law gave the, the priesthood to the sons of Levi, all right? Um, who received the priesthood, have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law. Now notice this. Levi had a commandment to, to take tithes. Melchizedek did not have that commandment. That's a little nugget there for if you're wondering about tithes and offerings. There's your little nugget. I won't get into that, but you can get into it. Um, all right, that is from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. But he whose genealogy is de not derived from them received tithes. So I want you to notice something. It said the sons of Levi take tithes, but the order of Melchizedek receives them. Again, I'm not preaching on tithing, but there you go. That's, that right there is well worth it. If, you, if you've been wondering about giving and stuff, that's well worth it. Um, and blessed him who had the promises. Now beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. Here mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them, of whom it is witness that he lives. I also think that this proves that Melchizedek was, a, um, was, was Jesus, because in the New King James it says, Here mortal men, speaking of Levi, but there, speaking of Melchizedek, he received them. So it's making the idea this, this guy wasn't mortal. All right, He was eternal. Um, but there he receives them, of whom it is witness that he lives. Even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak. For he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another, uh, uh, that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? So there's a word here that's being dropped, and, and if you're not careful, you'll read order, over it. That word is order. Now, the word order simply means an arrangement or a fixed succession. So what's that mean? First, I'll do this. Then, you'll, like this morning, first, Angie will open up. Then Brian will do worship. Then we'll do communion. Then Grant will preach. Right? That's the order. Okay? Um, so here he's saying there was an order of Levi, but God comes along and God, when Jesus becomes a priest, he says, all right, you're not a priest after the order of Levi. You're a priest after the order of Melchizedek. That's important. Uh, verse 12, For the priesthood being changed, of necessity there is also a change of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no man has officiated the altar. In other words, that's just saying, listen, Jesus is from the tribe of Judah. That's, a, that's one way we know the law is fulfilled because God has put a high priest in charge who's not from uh, the tribe of Levi. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. And it is yet far more evident if the, in the likeness of Melchizedek there arises another priest who has come not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. Verse 17, For he testifies, You are a priest forever. 
This will never change. The order of Melchizedek will never change after the order of Melchizedek. Now go with me to Malachi 3 and verse 8. So the order, the order. What does the order of Levi look like? Let's look here, verse 8. Will a man rob God, yet you have robbed me? But you say, in what way have we robbed you? How? In tithes and offerings. Anybody sweating yet? Think I'm about to preach on tithing, how you're going to be cursed. Look here. This is, so this is written under the old covenant. And he's saying, you've robbed me. And they're like, well, how have we robbed God? Right? You, you own the earth. He's like, well, you've not been giving me your tithes and offerings. All right? Verse 9. Because of that, you are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Now look here, verse 10. This is why we're here. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in mine house, and prove me now herewith, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not pour you out a open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing that there shall not be room enough to, to receive it. And then he says, For I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes. So I want you to notice, this is the order of Levi. What's the order of Levi? All right, you bring me the tithes, then I will bless you. But until you bring me the tithes, there's no blessing, there's only a curse. That's the order of Levi. The order of Levi can be summed up in four words, right? You give, God responds. You give, God responds. What's the order of Melchizedek? Remember, first thing Melchizedek was, here's the body and the blood. Next thing he did was blessed, 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 blessed. And then in response to the blessing, in response to the body and the blood, then what's Abraham do? He gives. So the order is changed. So the order of Levi, you give, God responds. The order of Melchizedek, God gives, you respond. And this is going to be the way things work beginning at the cross forever. God's blessing comes first, you respond. He's not going to twist your arm. He's not going to bend your arm. But when you see the blessing, when you see the body and the blood, you give. Nobody has to coerce you. Nobody has to force you. You don't have to be threatened with a curse. You give. That's the order of Melchizedek. You give. God responds, order of Levi, order of Melchizedek, under this new covenant, God gave, now you respond. The blessing comes first. Ephesians 1.3, we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. What more do you want? Man. Genesis 18, let's get into the good stuff. Let's get into the encouraging story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Everybody loves to hear this one. But remember, we don't want to be I don't want you we don't have to be afraid of any scripture. Not when you see Jesus and him crucified. Then the men arose from there and looked toward Sodom. So what's happened here is God and some angels, it's it's Jesus and some angels. Jesus before he had a physical body appears and and they appear to Abraham. They're speaking with Abraham and they're about to leave. So when it says the men, it's speaking of the angels. 
uh, rose from there and looked towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to send them on the way. Now remember, Abraham's nephew Lot lives in Sodom. All right? And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? You know what this is? This is covenant friendship. And this is what we have with God. Um, you know, everything that I can think that has happened in my life that, that is bad, I can think and I can be like, God tried to talk to me about this. God tried to tell me. He did. He tried to tell me everything. Right? And so that's what's going on with Abraham here. Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice. Um, verse 20, And the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very great, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Then the men turned away from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Now I want you to notice what happens here. Abraham came near and said, Would you destroy the righteous with the wicked? Would you destroy the righteous with the wicked? Now it's amazing what Abraham does here. He begins to um, play on God's mercy. Play on God's compassion. Would, let's say there were 50 within the city. Would you destroy it for 50's sake? But there suddenly says, verse 25, Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do right. I want you to know something. Right here in the middle of this story that a lot of people struggle with, Abraham says that one of the most wise things concerning the justice of God, the sovereignty of God, all of these things, you can bank on this. Listen, those doctrines that you struggle with, let's just throw it out there, hell and, and, and uh, heaven and, and justice and all these things, listen, here's one thing you can bank on. The judge of all the earth will do right. And Abraham knew that. And again, we go on about Sodom, and we have trouble seeing how God could do this. We can read on here. For time's sake, we won't read all of it. Long story short, God get, or Abraham gets him down to ten and says, if you find ten people, will you not destroy it? And God says, if I find ten people, I won't destroy the city. He did not say, I won't destroy just those ten. I won't destroy the city if I can find ten righteous people. Well, we know he goes to Sodom, and guess what? He can't find ten. So if you need to know how bad it was, God couldn't find ten. But he did find one. He did find one. And the judge of all the earth did right, and he didn't destroy the righteous with the wicked. Okay? Look here with me. Let's go. Let's, let's read that real quick. Go down to... Um, Actually, look, look at 1 Timothy 2.5. So what Abraham is doing is, Abraham, remember what I said. All right, one of the things in the church that we do, we've got this whole intercession. I don't want to say movement, but there's people that, their whole thing is we've got to intercede, right? If we don't intercede for the nations, the nations will be lost. I believe in prayer, right? 1 Timothy, right before this, he says, listen, I want prayer to be made for all men. 
especially for those who are in power and in authority. I'm for that. But the problem is, with this whole idea of intercession, we put the weight on our shoulders. And it's up to us to pray, and when we don't, when we've not prayed for the president, when we've not prayed for the country, no wonder things you know, are going so bad. We, we, we put all the pressure on us. But here's the thing. So we read, and like those people will say, well, look what Abraham did with God. He bargained with God, right? Um, here's what I'm talking about. You are not the good guy in this story. That does, I'm not saying you're bad, all right? Lot wasn't bad. Lot was righteous, but Lot was dumb. You can, you can do what you want to with that. I'm saying you're Lot, and Lot was dumb. You can do what you want to with that. But uh, I'm Lot. I am Lot. I'm not Abraham in the story. I'm Lot. Lot chose Sodom. Abraham, you can read the story. Abraham says, you know what? See, they had too much cattle. They had to go separate ways. Abraham says, I tell you what, whichever, side, whichever direction you want, pick it, I'll go the other one. That's how much Abraham trusted God. And it says, Lot looked towards Sodom and seen how beautiful it was. And he said, well, I'll take that direction. So Lot goes on his way and God speaks to Abraham and God says, listen, look north, south, east, west. I'm giving it all to you. Right? But Lot chose Sodom. So who chose Sodom? Who chose to live there? Lot. So Lot is a representative of us who makes dumb decisions. Everything happens for a reason. And I promise you 99% of the time the reason is you. All right? Um, now listen, stuff happens. We live in a fallen world. But a lot of the stuff that we blame on God and the devil is just the, just the result of our dumb decisions. Um, and that's where Lot was. But you know what? Even in the midst of his dumb decisions, God was faithful to Lot. Amen. And why was he faithful to Lot? Because Lot interceded? Because Lot prayed? Because Lot did right? No. Lot was saved from Sodom and Gomorrah because Abraham interceded for him. Lot was saved not because of his goodness, but because of Abraham. Alright? You are not Abraham. Jesus is Abraham. You are the one who said, you know what, I'll take Sodom. And you're the one stuck in Sodom. And, and God's having to come and rescue you, all right? For there is one God and one mediator. Breaking news, that mediator is not you. Who is it? The man, Christ Jesus. Hebrews seven twenty five. Therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost them that come unto God by Him. That's the only qualification. You want Jesus to intercede for you? All you got to do is come to the Father by Him. Right? Seeing He ever lives to make intercession for them. So if you're in the middle of, listen, I've messed up, I've done some dumb things, good news, Jesus is your intercessor. Jesus will make sure you are rescued because He's your rescuer. He's your Abraham. You might be stuck in Sodom, but help is coming. And it's not because of you. Genesis 19, verse 15. So let's read here. When the morning dawned, 
the angels urged Lot to hurry, saying, Arise, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be consumed in the punishment of the city. And while he lingered, the men took hold of his hand. Look here. He, like, Lot is, he's dumb. Like, how, this is us. Let's just be honest. This is me. Lot lingered. They're like, listen, we're about to burn this place to the ground, and Lot is lingering. And look how faithful God is to Lot. He's lingering. And while he lingered, the men took hold of his hand, his wife's hand, and the hands of his two daughters. Why? The Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. So it came to pass when they had brought them outside that he said, Escape for your life. Do not look behind you nor stay anywhere in the plains. Escape to the mountains lest you be destroyed. Then said Lot to them, Please know, my lords, indeed now your servant has found favor, if your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have increased your mercy which you have shown me by saving my life. Uh, let's go down to verse 21. And he said to him, See, I have favored you concerning this thing also, in that I will not overthrow this city for which you have spoken. He's, he's referring to a city that was close to Sodom. Hurry, escape there. Look here. For I cannot. Look here. I cannot. I cannot. Not I will not. I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? The judge of all the earth will not destroy the righteous with the wicked. There's Listen, 1 Thessalonians 1-2 says that Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come. Now this is something we don't like to talk about, and, uh, but there is a wrath coming. Right now, the prophet, you know, there's people that say wrath's being poured out and stuff right now. Listen, when you read the New Testament, it always talks about a wrath that is to come. It either refers to a wrath that was taken care of at the cross, or it talks about a wrath that is coming. There is a wrath to come that doesn't have to scare you. Why? Because he delivered us from the wrath to come. That's what Lot is a picture of. Lot is a picture of us being delivered from the wrath to come. He's not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation. People have the argument, is there a rapture? Too late, there's already been one. Lot was raptured, right? There, there, that's just, God will always protect the righteous when the wicked are being destroyed. That's biblical, it's something we don't like to talk about, but... Remember what I said, will not the judge of all the earth do right? You can bank on that. And when I, when I mention rapture or anything, don't get scared because, listen, you can't ever, you guys have heard me speak on this, you can't put me in a box. You can't say, well, Grant's this. You read this book, that's what Grant believes. Listen, no, but the Scripture is very clear that they which are alive and remain shall be caught up, Right? And you look that word caught up. Man, I just spent weeks meditating on this, and I'll probably preach on it later in the year. But when you look up that word caught up, it means to be snatched hastily. I mean, it, you, you have to deny the Bible to deny that that will happen. 
Now, you can deny the charts. You can deny this person's interpretation. But listen, Jesus is coming. And when he does, will, the, will not the judge of all the earth do right? He will not destroy the righteous with the wicked. We can bank on that. We can bank on that. All right? Um, so let's see how much time we have here. We're going to go to Genesis 22, verse 1. Now, Melchizedek was easy. This one's easy. And so I don't think I have to take as much time on it, but this is the one, uh, you know, when people first start preaching, this is like one of those texts. They're like, yeah, this is, this is one I'll cut my teeth on. Uh, Genesis 22, verse 1, And it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. Then he said, Take now your son, your only son, Isaac. We read real fast. You know what I find interesting about this? I just noticed this a few weeks ago, meditating on this. Notice he says, take now thy son, thine only son, Isaac. Do you guys see a problem with that? He had two sons. And Isaac was number two. Ishmael was his first son. So he's got two sons. But here God says, take now your son, your only son. And he's going to make sure he ain't going to get rid of the the favorite because he's like, listen, I'm talking about Isaac, right? Whom you love and get into the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. Uh, So why why did I bring that out about your only son? It's trying to point you to something. It's not, he, he wasn't talking about Isaac as much as he was talking about Jesus. All right? Um... Verse 3, So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. And he split the wood. Remember we talked about with the ark. When you read wood, just stop. I can guarantee you're, you're, it's talking about the cross. That's what it wants you to see. It doesn't want you to see wood. It wants you to see the cross. It didn't want you to see the ark. It wants you to see the cross. All right? So he took the wood... Um, and took two and saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him, Isaac's son, split the wood for the burnt offering, and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. So notice, God has a specific place where he wants him to go. And there's a reason for this. Then on the third day, again, you got to be blind to not see this. On the third day, right? What's this speaking of? Think about it. Third day, Jesus. Jesus. All right. Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to his young men, now he says something here that's got so much faith. Abraham looks and sees the place afar off. I don't believe Abraham looked and just seen the mountain. I believe he looked and seen what was to come about 4,000 years down the road. How do, why do I believe that? Look what Abraham says to his young men. Stay here with the donkey... The lad and I will go yonder and worship, and then we will come back to you. God said, you're going to offer Isaac up to me. But Abraham says, me and him, we're coming back. We're going up here to worship, and then we are coming back. I believe that when Abraham looked, I don't believe that Abraham just saw a mountain. I believe he saw the cross. And I believe he's seen what God was getting at. Jesus said to the Pharisees, he said, Abraham seen my day, and he rejoiced. When did he see his day? When did Abraham see him? I believe this is one of the places where he's seen him. 
Um, verse 6, So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. So here's what's happening here again. We just read over this. Here's what, They're about to go up the hill. He puts the wood on Isaac's back, and Isaac packs it up the hill. Sound familiar? Jesus put the cross on his back. The Romans put the cross on his back, and he had to walk it up the hill. All right? Um, and he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham his father and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. Then he said, Look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Verse 8. And Abraham said, My son... God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. Now, I like the way the King James here says it uh, because this is accurate to the Hebrew. Abraham says, my son, God will provide himself a lamb. Now, my new King James that I got here says he will provide for himself. But in the Hebrews, Hebrew, it's more accurate to say God will provide himself. Read it that way. God will provide himself. God will provide himself. He's not going to provide a lamb. God is going to provide himself as the lamb. He is the lamb. All right? God will, and I want you to notice here, because we're going to read. Notice what does he say God will provide himself? A lamb. He says God will provide himself a lamb. So they went, both of them, together. All right? Let's read on here. Uh, verse... Nine. And they came to the place which God had told him. And Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order. And he bound Isaac his son, just like Jesus was bound on the cross, right? And laid, uh, laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. And the angel of the Lord, and let me just say this, angel of the Lord is always Jesus. You can read it in your own time. Just go back every instance that you read about the angel of the Lord. It's always Jesus before he had a physical body. How do I know that? Just read. They always refer to him as God. Every time they see an angel of the Lord, they always refer to him as God. And he said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. Uh, verse 12. And he said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. Do you know why I believe? So notice it says, Abraham looked and he seen the place afar off. Then he tells Isaac, God's going to provide himself for a lamb. But then here it says that he offers a ram. Now I'm well aware that a ram is a type of lamb. right? I, I know that. But why in the Hebrew did it not just say, a ram before, or a lamb. Why, why? That's intentional. Because this isn't the lamb that Abraham was talking about. Abraham seen, seen something way far off. He's seen the cross. He's seen Jesus on the cross. This was not the lamb he had in mind. The lamb he had in mind was Jesus and him crucified. Right, so here he says, um, he took, uh, so Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. Now look here in verse 14, because I think this is better in, in the King James here. It says, and Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah Jireh. And it, said, and it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. Now 
the New King James will say the Lord will provide, but I like how the King James says it shall be seen. Because um, Jehovah Jireh just means the Lord will see to it. It shall be In the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. History tells us that the mountain here that Abraham was taking Isaac upon would eventually become known as Calvary. In the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. Abraham seen it. And when he seen it, he rejoiced. And here he's telling his son, listen, one day on this same mountain, that lamb that God's going to provide, it'll be seen. I'm fine with what's saying it, he shall provide. Why? Because there is our ever provision, right? Um, let's see here, and let, let's go on. Let's, before we finish, Genesis 24, this one won't take us long. This is the last... Last story we got here. Genesis 24. This one's quick. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. So Abraham said to the oldest servant of his house, who ruled over all that he had. Now notice, so he's, Abraham is speaking here, and he says to his servant, and notice what it says about his servant. His servant ruled all that he had. I'm going to give you the type as we go. Abraham is God the Father. The eldest servant is the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is the one who oversees the church. All right, He oversees everything that belongs to the Father. Please put your hand under my thigh and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but you shall go to my country and to my family and take a wife for my son Isaac. So the father, Abraham is God the Father. Isaac is the Son. He's Jesus. The servant is the Holy Spirit. Now Rebekah, who will eventually become Isaac's wife, is the church. So the, ser so the Father says to the Holy Spirit, Go and gather my son a bride. This is a picture of what the Holy Spirit is doing today. He's gathering a bride for his son. That's the work of the Holy Spirit in this day. Right? And then right here, we're finishing here. Uh, let's read on. Then Rebecca, so he goes, he finds Rebecca. It's, if you got time, Genesis 24 is 67, 68 verses. It's one of the best love stories in, in the Bible. But Rebecca arose. Now, I like this. Well, let me read on. And they rode on the camels and followed the man. So the servant took Rebekah and departed. Now Isaac came from the way of Beer Lahiroi, for he dwelt in the south. Now notice here. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field in the evening. Now I want to point something out. We just read over this. But when you read Scripture, you need to really engage your heart. Let your imagination be ignited. See these things, and it'll come alive to you. When I see Isaac going out to the field to meditate, it's, have you ever tried meditating? Remember, we're talking about you know just seeing the Word of God come to fulfillment in our life, meditating on the Scriptures. Uh, it's really hard to do when you're standing. But if you sit, it becomes easier to focus, right? It's just easier to focus when you're sitting. Um, so what I see here is I see Isaac out in the field sitting. And then it says, and he lifts up his eyes and looked, and there the camels were coming. Then Rebekah lifted her eyes 
And when she saw Isaac, she lighted off or she dismounted from the camel. For she had said to the servant, Who is this man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she took a veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. So what I see is, here's what this is a picture of. I see Isaac sitting just like Jesus is said to be sitting at the right hand of the Father. The servant is bringing the bride to meet Isaac. The Bible says that one day we're going to be caught up in the air to meet him. And notice it says when, when Rebekah seen him, she lighted off. She went up. Right? So, so Rebekah comes off the camel to meet Isaac. One day we are going to see him. We're going to see the husband. And we are going to be caught up. And we're going to meet him. And look what happens when he meets him. Then Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent, and he took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac's comforted after his mother's death. Here's what that's saying. So think about this. The mother's tent is part of the father's house. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and do what? Receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. One day our Isaac is going to come, and we are going to rise to meet him, and he is going to take us into the Father's house. Is that not good news? And Rebecca didn't do anything anything to earn this. All she did was respond. The servant came. The servant made the offer. She said, I'll go. What a beautiful picture of us. What a beautiful picture. We are the bride of Christ. Amen. Has this blessed you guys today? Amen. So, I suggest guys, look, the book of Genesis is 50 chapters. The last two weeks, I've taken you through 24. And you know, the, I told you last week, the story of Joseph, and we'll get to that eventually. Next week, Jeremiah minister, and I'll, I'll be back in a few weeks, and I'll minister again and finish it up. But when you get to the life of Joseph, the life of Joseph is literally laid out the entire plan of God. If you want to know what's coming in the future, it's in the life of Joseph. Why? Because don't read Joseph, read Jesus. So I, I really suggest go through the book of Genesis. See more than Sunday school stories. See Jesus. And, if you, and here's what I love about this, and this is what makes it tricky for people, is because it takes the Holy Spirit to reveal these things. That's why the Bible says, Paul said, listen, even today when the, when the Jews read the Old Testament, there's a veil over their heart. What, what do, what's it keep them from seeing? Jews will argue you all day, Isaiah 53 is not talking about Jesus. But we read Isaiah 53 and it's so obvious. Like how could it be anyone else? Right? But the Jews to this day, they'll say no, it's not, it's not, it's not Jesus, it's not one man, it's this and that. Right? Why? There's a veil on their heart. But if they'll turn to Christ, the veil will be removed. And then 
what they've never seen. You'll be surprised if you'll just say, all right, Lord, open this up to me. I want to see Jesus in the scriptures. I compare it. You guys have heard me use this illustration before. You guys remember those Where's Waldo books? Yeah, remember? And you would look and you'd try to find Waldo and... You would struggle and struggle and struggle and struggle to find him. You're sitting there, you're looking, you can't find him. But when you see him, you can never unsee him. You can close that book, open it back up to that page, and your eyes will go straight to Waldo. It's like, you know, the problem with those Where's Waldo books is they're not very valuable for long because once you've found him, you can't unfind him, Right? And that's the, way, that's the way it is with seeing Jesus in the Bible. Once you see him, you can't unsee him. You're, you're, you're putting up treasure for yourself that you can draw from. Amen. All right, guys, let me bless you, and then we'll be dismissed. Father, I just thank you for this wonderful opportunity that we've had to, to be with these people. Uh, I bless them in the mighty name of Jesus. Lord, I ask that you would open our eyes and show us Jesus in every page of the Scripture. I pray for those Scriptures that have, um, that just cause people pain, that have caused people hurt, that's been used to, to beat them up. Lord, I pray that you redeem those Scriptures uh, in their heart. Show them Jesus in Jesus' name. I realize as soon as Dan stood up, I knew I forgot the offering. So I'm going to go ahead and... I forget every time, so... Uh, so we'll let we'll let Dan take up the offering. Connie, you got something to share? Go ahead. Hold on one second. Let's get this microphone. Okay, this is Hebrews chapter one, uh, verses one and two in the Passion Translation. Long ago, God spoke many times and in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. And now, in these final days, he has spoken to us through his son. God promised everything to the son as an inheritance, and through the son, he created the universe. Actually, in my Passion Translation that I have at home, it, oh, that was NLT, I'm sorry. But in the Passion Translation, it says he has um, spoken to us in the language of his son, and that's, that just really spoke to John and me. He speaks to us in the language of the son. That's good. That's good. Amen. The the. The Son is the language which the Father speaks. That's just a powerful illustration. It really is. It's, it's just it's powerful. Those things like that, we tend to just kind of read over those things. But, um, again, it's just... That, that's something I want to suggest, too. When you read your Bible, slow down. Because what we do is, you know, we, we tend to... You guys have heard me share. I've got, my, I've got my routine I've done since I was 16 years old, so I've done it over half my life. I, I, I just have a habit. I read five chapters in the Bible every morning, I, and I've never done it legalist, you know, in a legalist way or anything like that. But people don't realize, I've had people say, oh, I'm going to do that, and they try to do it, and they fail at it. Because what it is is they don't understand. Listen, there's some days I say five chapters, but if I get one verse in and God speaks to me, I stop. Right? Like five's a go. But when he speaks, I, I stop. Right, because we don't want to be in a rush. Because we're in, when we're in a rush, it's like you know, you, you start reading. All right, got five chapters. God tries to speak to you. You're like, all right, now shut up. I got to finish this. You know, that's what we do a lot of times. But when you take your time, like what I said about like God spoke to Abraham and said, "Your only son Isaac." 
I've, I've read Genesis probably 30, 40 times, and I'd never noticed that. And it hit me like, wait a minute. He had two sons, and Isaac was the second, right? Stuff like that, and it'll just open up to you. So, all right, guys, uh, we're going to go ahead and be dismissed. Love you guys, and we'll see you back next week.